for the younger listeners, what Jean is telling you is she was really cool. She that was really cool, very, very cool. Yeah, just that's a cool person right there. I won Best Smile on the Computer Lab staff, so <laughs> hey, I really was cool. <laughs> Hey, Rich. Hi, Paul. We are joined by the CEO of Postlight, Gina Trapani. Hey, Paul. Hey, Rich. Hello, Thanks for Gina. Me on the show. It's lovely to have you on the show. I like barging on the show. I am in the presence of internet legend, legends. I want to actually frame this first. This is a two part series. This will be the first of two podcast episodes where we're going to talk about the history of the web. And I happen to be fortunate enough to have in my Rolodex, Paul Ford, a blogging pioneer. I'm just gonna say that out loud. Gina Trapani, founder of Lifehacker, but even there's an aura around Gina beyond Lifehacker. Lifehacker is one of many things Gina did. And you guys watched the web grow up. I watched the web grow up too, but you guys were active participants. You were inside. And I want to talk about Web 1, Web 2, and then eventually we're going to get to Web 3. Insert dramatic music. Oh, the semantic web. No, not that one. Uh, Not that one. Not that one. I think that's somewhere in two. Now, I would start at Gopher, but I'm not going to do that to you or our listeners. That was pre-web, port 70. We're not doing People are trying to bring it back, but no. Okay, so, Rich, you have an agenda. Why don't don't you just, just like our meetings, get driving. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I'm going to interview you guys. I, I want to do it this way. I mean, I read a lot and watched a lot, but you guys were in the middle of it. Mm. It's 1994. Oh, a friend boy. of mine said, get off the BBS dial-ups that you've been calling into and check this thing out. You just need an internet service provider. What was your favorite BBS called? What was that? I was in the like hacking and cracking and blue box scene and all that stuff. Like I was into all of that. I've broken laws but I, was a, I would have been a, a minor, let's put it that way. It was just fun. I didn't really want to steal anything. I just It was just so cool to be able to, to do all that stuff. It was nonsense. It was just us sitting outside the, the lines that they told us to stay with. Stealing right? Commodore 64 programs. Yeah, and even like hacker intros and, and just those were better than the games in a lot of cases, right? And, and music that was traded on the C64 was awesome stuff. The web shows up. What is the vision of the web? I mean, this is an actually a hard question. I mean, the spec comes out, HTTP and HTML. There's the Mosaic browser. What is the beginning of the web? Paul. I mean, there's a couple different ways to define beginning, but the simplest way to define it is that a nice person named Tim Berners-Lee made a, a system for organizing information while at CERN, which is the Swiss-French high-energy physics lab facility and he'd been playing around with this stuff for quite a while like since that since the 80s and he was there as a computer scientist and he built this thing called an http server that let you access a computer remotely and using a web browser at that point terminal based later based on on sort of the next computer and it let you get to web pages and it kind of did a lot of the stuff that we associate like it, you know, there was the idea that it would be the rolodex for this whole big facility and you could search for stuff, and it would let you publish physics papers online. Mm. Anyone could set up a server and, and share their their physics papers. So that the thing about it is, it was purely opt in. You could say, "I want to publish a web page," and if you could figure out how to get a server and publish one, then you were on the web. 
that doesn't sound that different than a BBS. So I want to I want to actually say it in words. Like what what was different here? The BBSs weren't all networked in the same way. They were they had to dial each other up and share stuff and so on. And, and this was just these were just pages. It was just publishing. Here you go. So the currency was pages, and there were images. I remember it was like a big deal to see better and better images in the '90s as the browsers got better and better. Tell me about the user at that point in time. I want to ask about the user in each of these iterations of the web. What is the user, the typical user? Gina. Yeah, I mean, at this time, when we're talking about 1994, I mean, I have a visceral memory of I was in the computer lab, the basement computer lab in 1994 in Poughkeepsie, New York. And I, I worked at the computer lab. It was mostly mainframes at that point. And my colleague said, there's something I have to show you. And it's on the OS2 machine downstairs. Come on, let's go. And I was like, okay. I go down there and he brings me up to a screen that's got, I later learned, has got mosaic up and it's, it's a guy's resume, mm. you know, with his name and it's, and the, you know, the name is like a big headline font and it's a white screen and it's got his, you know, employment history. And I said, what am I looking at? And he said, that's his resume. He lives in France and we're looking at his resume here on this computer. And I said, I don't understand. Is this like a Word document? And I start clicking on it because I want to try to like edit it. I think it's, you know. And he says, mm -hmm. no, no, no. We got this from this server in France. This guy published his resume and now we're looking at it here. I didn't understand. I, I still <laughs> like just didn't get it. But that's, yeah. that's what we were talking about. We're talking about a page loaded in a browser with formatting, you know, a, a document. The document-based web. And then, dun-dun-dun, some of the words on the page had underlines and were blue. Yes. The hyperlink. I mean, that, that is, was the thing. That's the connective tissue, right? That made up yes. the web. Well, now it's, a, now it's a web. Now the pages are linked together, and I can keep reading and keep reading. So now I'm there for hours. You're there for hours. And then, you know, you look at the address, and you say, Daddy, most of them were Daddy to you for me at that point. I was in college. Mm -hmm. What server is this? What do you mean? I went from this computer and this server in, the, in here, and I'm traveling around the world. I'm hitting servers around the world. That was the difference. I remember that moment. That moment when you realized you were like, just looking at some random computer in the UK or in Asia, yes. and you were like, wow, I can literally kind of touch the world from my little college. It just yes. felt, that's so trivial now, but it was a surreal moment. Blew my mind. Absolutely Well, because a, a long-distance phone call to the same country was like $14. This is the reason why I worked in the computer lab to begin with, by the way. I had to pay my long-distance bill. Yep. <laughs> it was a very different time. That is an unthinkable <laughs> thing. Reason yes. today. Yeah. Yes. Okay, so the hyperlink is really that connective tissue. The currency is the web page or the document and the words mm -hmm. are like there are publishers, but most of us were consumers. The web didn't know who you were, Gina, or who you were, Paul, yet. And there was, and I remember this, I remember how utterly democratic it all felt. There's just nobody was very important yet on the web. No, like everybody yes. was out there. It was, it was, had an academic bent. Well, there was a scene, there was Wired Magazine, and there were like these sort of nascent celebrities of the internet. And they would make you all, if you were in this world, it could make you really jealous. But by comparison to like, they were one one hundredth of one half of an influencer 
in modern metrics. And the, like the they, next logical question when you saw the you know the random person's website or or resume was how do I get one of those, right? Yep. Like mm-hmm. and so then you're like I want to learn if this this college student in Paris did it, I want to be able to do it. How do I do it? And then that was what was so compelling. And then, you know, the point at which I realized, okay, this is how you edit the web page and I can edit my own web page and and get it myself. Like that was the key moment. I mean, the history if we come out of the sort of the typical iterations of the web, of web one to web two, and we're going to eventually talk about web three, asterisk. But if you really look at the history of the web, the history of the web is shortening and eliminating the steps to publish. That is the entire history of the web. Sure. The first phase for Gina is she had to look at the source code and figure out how to add her own HTML tags to the document. And then maybe it was if technical. she wanted to... Yeah, there weren't content management systems. You would write little scripts that would put all of your words together into different files and upload it to your server and stuff I mean, like that. it so, wasn't for the world. It wasn't. But if you made that connection, like I can edit my own HTML, and then I remember the first time I saw the like last updated timestamp or the current date, yeah. a piece of server-side logic had executed when I downloaded that page and looked at it, or the counter of how many visitors came to the site, and that you're like, oh, way. it's a little bit more than yeah. a document. You know? There's a critical thing here, too, that I think will be important to come back to, which is that the initial time to publish and learn the basics of this whole thing was like an hour. Like You would be able to get a page up following yes. one tutorial, and it would say, I'm Gina Trapani. I'm real cool. I have the best smile in the computer lab. And then that would kind of like, that was enough, right? Like, and you'd be like, oh crap. And you'd load it in your browser and it worked. And everything was incremental after that. I want to counter what you're saying though, because it was this extreme minority. I'm talking pre-blogging, pre-Microsoft front page. This is- No disagreement. 0.0001% is getting a web page up. No disagreement, but even for us, there were learning curves for all kinds of things. And the, and the learning curve was, I could teach this to anybody, even if they just knew a little bit of computing. And I could get them up there pretty quickly. And then everything else was incremental. So people would make those first pages. And then of that 0.001%, that like probably 20% of them would go back and update the page later, right? And, and then again and again and again until the kind of the web grew out of that. But it wasn't seismic, right? It was still documents. It was this sort of evolution of media. It was viewed that way as this like, oh, this is where publishing is going. Like Correct. what you saw in the late 90s, and I was I was in the middle of it because I came out of law school and did a hard left into sort of the dot-com bubble, is that they were faking it, essentially. You had a lot of server-side processing that was happening that was pushing what is supposed to be an interactive experience. And that was happening in commerce and in other ways, but it was still publishing. It was just publishing a lot all the time, right? And and dot-com bubble bursts. Amazon is alive and kicking. It's like a toddler at this point. eBay is alive and kicking, and there's the network effects of that. eBay was the hit. eBay was the big hit. Because it, it you know what it is? It echoed the democratic dynamics at the time, right? Which was this idea of storefronts are dead. We're just going to sell things to each other in very basic bespoke ways. And it's going to be how the world is going to be. So now let's fast forward past the dot-com bubble. It's the early 2000s. Let me describe my time and place. I took a gig down in Atlanta at the Georgia Tech Research Institute. And it was consulting. I was just doing mercenary consulting. I I was going to go back to the law if it didn't work out. And then Tim O'Reilly puts out a paper called Web 2.0, essentially. And what he said was, the next evolution of the web is is not publishing. 
We have to pause and explain to some of the people in our audience who Tim O'Reilly is and what that means. Yeah, I didn't think much of Tim O'Reilly till I saw that paper, to be perfectly frank. I think he's brilliant. I didn't know he was that person when he wrote it. I didn't view him as this highly so, abstract technology thinker, but Tim O'Reilly's a publisher. He's a he's a thinker. He's a technologist in the world. I mean, O'Reilly Publishing is widely regarded. But also, he was a glue person who brought a lot of the early internet people together. Yes. Gina's going to take Web 2.0. What happens? Why is there a version 2 of the web? And what is it? You know, I always thought that Web 2 was just kind of a, I don't know, it was a buzzword. I mean, to me, I'll explain what, what it meant to me, but you tell me what the actual proper definition is. Mm-hmm. To me, Web 2.0 meant that we had we introduced the concept of APIs and integrating one service with another, right? We went mm-hmm. from the idea that websites published flat documents meant for consumption entirely in a browser to websites that served data that other websites could consume and display, right? Mm-hmm. This idea of integrating sites. I'm trying to think of like some of the early examples. You guys remember like Yahoo Pipes? It was actually pretty f- far along at that point. But there, yep. there are and these- we're still yeah. trying to get back to that, right? Like it was, it let yes. people connect different data sources visually exactly. using a web browser, moving things around. And everyone got really super standards, you know, obsessed. And like, I mean, I guess we, you know, we could talk about XML and JSON and semantic web. and a bit, But the idea that like the computers could talk to one another and we could really remix the web in new and interesting ways and make new things possible. There was a big website at that moment called it was it was the read write web, right? And so like that the idea was that instead of being read only, you'd be able to put stuff back into the web. And and that had always been there. There'd been forms and there'd been, you know, when you make a transaction and buy something on eBay that gets logged in the database. But now it was getting faster and everyone could do it and they could publish their blogs by Instead of having to learn HTML and, and link Gina and, and add tags to text, they could go and there'd be a box on a web page and they could fill that out. Yep. Yep. Web 2.0 is like a little bit of that and a lot more velocity and kind of richer media, stuff like Flickr showing up and stuff like YouTube tags. starting to show up. RSS yeah. feeds, you know, RSS is just a, you know, way to consume information programmatically. Yeah, tags were a big thing, hashtags. Critically, the idea was that the community, the larger web community would still continue to come together, organize data, have control over the kind of media it saw. Everybody could publish and comment on anything that they wanted. And there was a there were two fundamental assumptions. One is that People wouldn't really want huge centralization. They would kind of push back against it, and that's why we would like things like RSS. The other assumption was that communities were essentially not toxic, that you could bring a million, zillion people together and that they would ultimately behave because this commons was really, really valuable. And everybody kind of knew that there was there would be bad actors, but no one – actually, Gina was really early with that. She was always very careful to remind people – that it wasn't all going to be roses, which I think came out of your experience as a woman on the internet, right? Like, but mm-hmm. like, no one was able to see like the velocity of toxicity that might follow. So those two things were still kind of out there. And in the meantime, it was all these exciting new Lego blocks and community building and content building and storytelling without as much centralization. And and stars emerged. I mean, right? There were characters, there were personalities, there were little little projects, you know, that got super popular and that people loved. And you know, there was a sort of golden time when we all followed one another by watching each other's websites. And there was this open sharing of ideas. It really did feel like a, 
you know, this is just a golden, amazing time of like discovery and, and blog new, networks you know, are showing up like this is the era of life hacker. And this is the mm -hmm. era of, you know, and your life hacker is telling the story. You're the first editor. It's telling the story of all these, these new big platforms and how you can use them. I mean, it's, it's worth, and you know, it's, I know this is kind of not about you, but you were there, right? Like, or, and partially it is about you. A lot of your focus in that time was about personal productivity. How do I use all of these tools these new wonderful free and available tools in order to organize and structure my life and get lots of good things done. Like it was a very positive, proactive message. And that to me sums up web two is like, look at the amazing things that I've got to build amazing things for myself and my community. Yes, there are people who are trying to kind of own the whole thing. You know, Facebook shows up, but we've got friend feed. We've got all these other ways to do it. And we'll just keep reading on RSS and we'll, we'll stick to Long our standards. Lines. Yeah. And so <laughs> exactly. I, I have faith in the community and that's what people want. And uh, sure, Yahoo just bought Flickr, but it's okay. They've bought other stuff before. It's going to work out fine. I mean, I, I think you described it well in terms of what it was. I think it was, it was this reimagining of this place as I think the, the first iteration of the web was more prescriptive about publishing and documents. And I think the second part of the web was like, you know, blow it all up. The hell with that. It's That's not the only currency. We accept all foreign currencies. And that currency may be a video that may be, actually, it may be a, anything. It may be a little tiny bite-sized bit of information. And so startups started to emerge where a key component of the startup was that you could use its capabilities in a programmatic way so you could build on top of it, right? I mean, you want to hear a really, really wacky idea. Here, Here's one. Google could someday be as big as Microsoft. Right. Like for Google to be a competitor to Microsoft, mm -hmm. even in the mid, by the mid-2000s, like that's when it started to feel feasible. But before that, it was like, oh, it's just search, it's the web. Like yeah. Then Map shows up, then Docs, and you're like, oh my, okay. Yep. But up until that point. I, I think this is another good point. I mean, the richness of the experiences. Mm -hmm. The browser was no longer feeling like a thing you used to read documents anymore. It was, I mean, when Maps came out, everybody fell out of their chairs. Like that was this wild experiment. Huge moment. It was yeah. proving ground for applications inside the browser. Simultaneously, for sure. and we've talked about this before, simultaneously the death of the document web, right? Like yes. Maps was not super accessible. It was kind of locked in. And Google actually went, went as far as to make their own browser. They just were like, all right, we're gonna need we're gonna need some control here. We gotta own the window Chrome, yep. Just in case. Just that in was case. another very surprising moment from Google. I mean, the thing the thing about Google, the original Google product, that search product, was it was a layer of software on top of the web already, right? Like Google's purpose was to you know get you elsewhere. All the content that you see in search is content that lives out on the web. What they did is they built the super fast robots and the very great results, mm -hmm. and that was that was interesting. But then when with Maps and with Chrome and with Docs and with Gmail, Gmail was another. What was that? April first. 2004, it felt like yeah. April Fool's Day. Everyone was like, wait, what? Because, you know, storage at that size, no one had ever heard of. That's when it started to change the game. It's worth noting, too, like, they were beloved, right? Like, Scott McCloud, who did Understanding Comics and is just a sort of, like, one of the early heroes of Web 2.0, just like a good explainer type, talking about visual explanations. They hired him to do a comic book explaining Chrome. Yes, I remember right? that. Out it goes into the world, and everybody is like, "Wow, what you know? What an org! They get it. They really okay. It's weird that they're making a new browser, but it's going to be open source. Everything's great." But then we lost <laughs> our way. 
Uh, no, the Things economic tendency. Weird. Yeah, the economic tendency to centralize took over as more and more humans showed up. The innate, grisly toxicity of human interaction and just racist, grim stuff started Paul, to rear its head. Let's not paint such a dark picture. I think there are. Hello at postlight.com. Hello at postlight.com. <laughs> If you'd like to build your Check own dystopian get platform, get in touch. Check us out on the internet. We'll help you centralize. No, but, but let's talk about why, why do you centralize? As a company, why do you do that? And why as users? Oh. It's for control. It's so that you can create an experience that's glossy and fast and good and aligns with your brand and does exactly what you mm-hmm. want it to do, right? Like that is the, the decentralization is what brought me to the web, right? But as a user, you know, if, if I've got a profit-driven company building a product who really want me to want to make my life easier in a particular way so they can charge me money for it like i'm gonna get a more usable product i think you're right and and you know it's not just that do you want to teach the 500 people in your organization about you know some weird decentralized thingy that will take them weeks and weeks to learn or do you want them to just check their gmail right and use calendar i had gotten to know i forgot how i connected to him but he was one of the most senior engineers at twitter and he'd left and he was visiting new york he was in san francisco and this was a like one of the people who helped them scale, like when they, I don't know if, if anyone knows like the details of internet history, Twitter was really buckling at one point. Like they could barely keep it fail up. Fail whale. Yeah, yeah fail the fail whale. Exactly. Yeah. And this guy was like, he was one of the stars who helped them scale and he quit. And the reason he quit, and I do think this was a moment when Twitter finally made the call and said, no more fun times on the API. It's over. Because you used to be able to build any Twitter client you wanted. And then one day, Michael Sippy, who's all of our friends, who has had a product announced to the world, like, sorry, we're cutting you off. We need to control the entire experience. But let's be, I, I don't think Twitter or anyone else needs to apologize about this. This was about money, right? Like this was about a business model being put into action and the fact that they couldn't control the end-to-end experience. Twitter was never going to be about charging a fee. It was always going to be about advertising. They needed to control the whole experience. That was a moment because if if there was ever a like folk song written about the democracy and the empowerment of the masses, it was written by Twitter. Like nobody at Twitter knew where Twitter was going. All we knew was this was here was this thing that just seemed to empower everyone because it truly finally boiled down publishing to like just your thumbs. And everybody was talking to everybody. And then all of a sudden- What made Twitter was mobile, right? Like suddenly mobile showed up at the same time. Ironically, Paul, the best mobile clients weren't from Twitter. They were built on that open API. Right. And that was the problem because they weren't weren't showing the ads, right? They were hammering the API. They weren't showing the ads and they weren't creating the experience that Twitter wanted to create. It's just how can you build your business when the core experience is running through someone else? And and people have very strong opinions about this. But like, you know, in retrospect, it's like, yeah, of course they did that. I was digging into, I forget who the client was, it's my old agency. We were digging into using Google Maps and layering data on top of it. And it was really expensive. And they're like, what the hell? Everybody's open. Everybody has APIs. What is this? 100 hits a month nonsense. And then it's like, Google Maps never had to apologize because they never did it in the first place, right? Google understood very early days that there was going to be a business application for this. There is no need to give this out into the world and like people will pay. 
Twitter and Facebook. Well, you had like Eric Schmidt in there, right? Like who was coming from true Silicon Valley. Yeah. Let's make money. And in a lot of ways, that is the sunset of Web 2, right? Like the rise of Apple, Facebook, Google. I forget the, it, there's like an acronym for like the big five. What is it? Fang. 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 Facebook, Apple, Amazon. Netflix. You know, I'll, I'll never forget, like there's always somebody who's got like an open, there's an open source version of everything so to sort of prove a point. There's an open source yeah. Slack. There's an open source Facebook. There's an open source, I forget the Twitter one. It was, they'd raised some money too, I remember. App.net. 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 Right. There you go. But let's be, let's be real, folks. The big criticism today is that your identity and data around you is siloed in these four companies and it will be siloed there forever because it's immensely valuable for analytics, for advertising, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But now there is a new sunrise, Paul, Gina. (sighs) Don't, Don't exhale. Is that excitement or is that exhaustion, Paul? Which is it? Oh, absolutely. Let's call it excitement. Okay. (laughs) And so this is where I get to say to be continued, dot, 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 because the promise of Web3 is to finally shatter this stranglehold on our privacy and our identity. So stay tuned for next week's podcast. But before you go, Gina, tell us a little about post. Wow, Rich, that's a real cliffhanger. What do you think? think? (laughs) Amazing, amazing. You see what I did? Postlight is a digital strategy, engineering, and design firm based here in New York City. If you need a legacy platform modernized or need to build a new platform or launch a new line of business, you should give us a ring. Send us a note, hello at postlight.com. And come listen to the next episode, which we're apparently going to record shortly. It's going to be good. Check out postlight.com, all kinds of great case studies. You'll see a lot of great work coming out of the team these days. Thank you, Gina Trapani. Thank you, Gina. Gina, you're coming back for episode two, right? Here? Absolutely. This was a lovely walk down memory lane. (laughs) All right. Well, now... We're going to head we're going to head straight into the future. See you there. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs>